The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, this is Alexis Haynes, and welcome to Recovering from Reality, where I illuminate the messy and magical path of coming home to yourself. Whether you're on the road to recovery, seeking self-care techniques for surviving the capitalist machine, or just need a moment to remember that you're not alone in your loneliness, we're serving up the ultimate truth. Your challenges don't define you. How you deal with them does. So, are you ready to recover from reality? So, I was six months pregnant when my lawyer came up to me and said, if you don't sign this plea right now, today, we are going to trial and you will never get out of prison. And I'm like, well, what's the plea? He said, five years with 15 suspended in 40 years exposure, which we don't have enough time to even explain. But I said, five years? I might get to know this baby if I only have to serve five years. That was a quick clip from this week's episode with Jessica Kent. Before I do this intro, I want to give a shout out to Cured Nutrition. You guys know how much I love Cured CBD. You can head over to curednutrition.com right now and use code Alexis25 for 25% off your order. Also, Sakara delicious plant-based meals delivered right to your doorstep. And with code REALITY, you can receive 20% off. That's Sakara S-A-K-A-R-A dot com and use code REALITY. So you guys have been asking me to have Jessica Kent on this podcast for a while now. And I'm so glad that we did. You know, I was reflecting prior to my podcast episode with her about why I think having this conversation is so important. And I think a big chunk of it is that despite the fact that incarceration affects so many people in the United States, we feel still like it's something dirty to talk about. I often hear when people talk about my story Um, They talk about my addiction. They talk about my abuse. They talk about mental health and uh, mental illness. But the whole going to jail thing was kind of brushed off, you know, or, or kind of ignored. But once you have that scarlet letter F (laughs) stamped onto your forehead, um, it affects you in major ways and just going to jail in general, I think does. And so it's no surprise that when Jessica Kent started blogging about her experience being pregnant in prison, she went viral. In this week's episode, obviously we're talking about going to jail and prison. We're talking about being pregnant in prison, about giving birth in prison. Um, but we're also talking about prison reform, about layers of privilege in prison. We're talking about bail reform. We're talking about how the current system in place makes it exponentially harder to rebuild your life. And so many people don't understand why um, there's a 70% recidivism rate I don't know if I just said that right, but we're going with it. (laughs) Meaning when you go to jail and serve a sentence, there's a 70% chance that you will be back there. And that's because 
being a convicted felon doesn't matter if you've done the time, community service, are on the right path, um, probation or not. Things like housing, getting your kids back, getting a good job, being able to vote. These are all things that are impacted once you become a felon. And here's the thing. A lot of people go, oh, okay, Alexis, well, it's your fault that you're a felon. True. Got it. But we can't talk about crime without talking about trauma. And at the root of, I believe personally, at the root of the vast majority of the major issues that we're looking at in the U.S. and around the world, it all comes down to trauma. It really does. Generational trauma, systemic racism, all of these things go hand in hand when it comes to crime. And while yes, it's true that it doesn't matter what socioeconomic status you're at in life, everybody commits crime. The for-profit prison industry and the jail industry in general and the incarceration rates majorly affect people of color and people who don't, who low-income families. So we're diving into a ton of topics today. It was really just such a pleasure to sit down. I don't think I've really ever talked about my experience in jail on the podcast before. And maybe I should do like (laughs) fun stories in jail. Uh, That might not be a hit here. But, um, you know, it was nice to get open and honest and to talk about the heavy stuff, and then some of the more funny stuff. So with that, here is Jessica Kent. I'm literally doing this ad read as I'm squirting Cured's amazing CBD into my mouth. It is so, so good. I love the mint flavor. So let me tell you a little bit about Cured Nutrition. Cured Nutrition is a Colorado proud company who has put quality and local sourcing and a strong brand behind the name since inception. They're on a mission to harness the healing power and nature of products that the body was designed to thrive on, perform, balance, and recover from sunrise to sunset with your daily dose of cured. You guys have heard me talking about the Zen nighttime blend. I'm a big fan over here. It helps me get the most amazing restful sleep. It's a combination of incredible adaptogen mushrooms and CBD. They have a whole variety of products. They have tinctures and full spectrum raw oils. They have the Zen nighttime blend, the rise blend, which is for the morning. They have different flavors of drops. Like I said, I just did the mint. They also have dog treats, which is so great. My dog Sailor is such a big fan. CBD is most commonly incorporated into wellness regimens to improve sleep, decrease inflammation, and reduce the body's stress load. And bonus, it's completely non-psychoactive. That's right. CBD does not get you high. Right now, Cured Nutrition is offering our listeners 25% off when you use code Alexis25 at checkout on your order of $50 or more. That's curednutrition.com and use code Alexis25 for 25% off your order of $50 or more. 
Hey guys, it's Gabby from What's Gabby Cooking, and I figured we've all got a little extra time on our hands right now. Hello, social distancing. So what better time to start a podcast than now? Come hang every Monday, Wednesday, Friday for the foreseeable future while we learn how to put those staple ingredients from your pantry to work. I'll be taking calls every podcast to answer your burning questions on what to make with a mishmash of ingredients, along with talking tips and tricks in the kitchen, how to do easy substitutions in different recipes, and who knows what else. Corona quarantine, here we come. Can you give my listeners who maybe don't know your story a bit of background? And if you could start from your childhood, because usually I find with my guests, that's really where it began and kind of bring us through the entire experience and how you ended up going to prison. Sure. So I won't make it too long. I was born on a rainy afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My my childhood was pretty just kind of all over the place. I grew up very, very poor. And I remember the first time realizing that I was poor, I was actually bullied quite heavily and these girls, um, they they noticed that I didn't have name brand clothes, and I had this like short pixie haircut, and and it really started to affect me at gosh, I want to say fifth grade, fourth or fifth grade, and you know that that poverty was kind of <laughs> interwoven in how I reacted as a teenager. So being bullied all through school, moving around from school to school, it just really psychologically affected me. And at that time, I had no clue that I was going through a lot of psychological damage from not having stability, from the constant bullying. And um, my mother struggles with depression and her own mental health. So I didn't understand that I had a genetic predisposition for mental illness. And, you know, it all compounded. So when I became a teenager, like very early teenager, 12 and 13, I started to go to parties and drink alcohol. And I fit in for the first time in my life. I was like the female Chris Farley. I was the life of the party and having a good time. And and people enjoyed being around me. And I never experienced that before. I was the nerdy kid that read books in the corner by herself. (laughs) And I never had friends before that. And I remember thinking like, whoa, this is it. Like, this is what I've been missing. And every day- It's like that social lubricant in a way. It's like it gave you that ability to, you know, it's like, and my experience with drugs and alcohol is different, but for a lot of people, I think that they have that similar thing where they were often shy or quiet and then alcohol and drugs allowed them to really just kind of blossom into who- they really are, um, but that they've been hiding from. Yeah, I know you can't see me, but I'm literally shaking my head yes to everything that you say, (laughs) because that was really just what it was, you know, and I didn't see the damage that it was causing. I just thought I was having a good time. I thought I would party and, and there was nothing wrong with it because people that I was around was partying and, you know, no one's stopping us. No one's saying like, this is really bad. You know, you're gonna cause all these problems later in life if you don't stop. So alcohol then turned into pills. And man, I just, again, I I didn't understand what I was doing to my body, what I was doing to my mind. And I essentially grew up on a substance. If I wasn't drinking alcohol, I was using pills. If I wasn't using pills, I was using cocaine. Anything that I could get my hands on, I would do. And from 12 and 13 to 22 or 23, I used a substance for a decade, you know? And, And that really just 
made me have a lot of problems because when you're 23 and you finally get sober, you don't even know who you are at that point. So it was almost like I had an identity crisis. Like, what do I believe in now? Who am I? Like, where do I fall in line politically? What, what kind of music do I like? And it was very uncomfortable, you know? And all I saw after I got sober was how, how horrible I was for 10 years. I saw someone that was very, very ugly, not outwardly ugly. Inside, I was a very ugly person. I was a violent person. I was an angry person. And it was very difficult for me to relearn my behavioral patterns, to learn how to not respond with violence, to learn how to listen, (laughs) to learn, you know, just basic things that you learn, you know, as you're growing up. So I I felt very uncomfortable, but I, um, I also sold drugs to kind of make up for this poverty thing that I dealt with my entire life. I thought the worst thing in the world that someone could be is poor. And now, of course, at 31, I'm like, that is the most flawed thinking ever. But as a child, you know, you just don't really understand that. So I sold drugs for a long time. I think that there's a component here too. And I think it's, we're having these conversations around privilege. And, you know, we start with race. Like men have always been seen as above women. And then of course, Mm -hmm. race, there's no question about that. We're witnessing riots across America right now because black people continued to get slaughtered in our streets by white people, specifically the police. And then we can't have the conversation of privilege without talking about socioeconomic status. And I know that that's something that I really relate to too, because When my parents got married, my dad was very successful. And um, while that was great for a couple of years, his addiction made him lose everything. And there was a period of my childhood that started around nine or 10 in those like really important developmental years that went on for many years where my dad became homeless and my mom had never had a real job before in her life and relied on his payments to her to get by. And she had rung up $100,000 in credit card debt. And we were filing for bankruptcy and we were living off of my dad's food stamps because my mom was too embarrassed to go and apply for food stamps. And when you're living in an area that is wealthy. This was my experience. I don't know exactly where you grew up, but we lived in this wealthy area, but as the poor kids, like Mm -hmm. we lived in a tiny townhouse and apartments while some of my friends lived in these two, three, four, five million dollars, 6,000 square foot homes. And while all of the girls at school at their bat mitzvahs were getting these Louis Vuitton bags, my mom, we were dressing at, you know, the Goodwill and TJ Maxx. And there is this component for children who, and I think that it's often not talked about enough, where you eventually start to recognize that you're poor. And while it's true that all socioeconomic groups commit crime, there's obviously going to be more crime in areas where there's more poverty or for people who deal with poverty. And I think that that's something that is just not talked about enough. We talk about systemic racism, but we also don't talk about 
maybe this is lack of a better word, but systemic poverty. Mm -hmm. We're seeing where the vast majority of Americans can't afford a $400, you know, emergency bill every month, where the vast majority of Americans make less than $50,000 a year, where the vast majority of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, suffering to get by. More and more people are renting than owning houses. I mean, we really need to think about the way that this is going to affect people. And I think for children, there is that component where when you're living in poverty and living off of, I mean, there was a period where at Christmas at my house, we couldn't afford gifts that year. So we rewrapped the stuff that we already had where we couldn't afford toilet paper. So we used paper towels that we had in our house. I mean, that's traumatizing for a kid. Yeah, it, it really is. And I, I relate so much to what you're saying. I didn't know any rich people <laughs> growing up. My yeah. my town is in upstate New York. And mm-hmm. while upstate New York is beautiful, you know, it's known for fall foliage and the Finger Lakes. And there's so much that upstate New York has to offer. A lot of the towns there are riddled with unemployment and poverty. So that's where I grew up. I didn't know any family that wasn't on food stamps, including my own. And as I, you know, I got to be 13, 14, I, I knew without a shadow of a doubt how poor we were. And it almost caused me to have like a chip on my shoulder. You know, I remember one morning waking up and going to the kitchen. My mom used to sleep on the couch because it just, she watched TV in the living room and she really struggled with depression. And, you know, night after night, she'd just fall asleep out there. And I walked past her and I went in the kitchen looking for some breakfast. There was nothing to eat. And I remember stealing one of her cigarettes and I'm like, oh, I think a cigarette will make me not hungry. And I walked to school that day and all I had for breakfast was a cigarette (laughs) and I was just pissed off. You know, I was mad. I was mad that we were so poor. I was mad that my mom couldn't get out of bed or couldn't get off the couch for three weeks. I was mad that I couldn't afford groceries, that I couldn't help. And the only way that I saw a way out of that was to sell drugs. Yeah. You know, and that that kills me because I can't imagine my children who are now they just turned eight and four. So crazy. But I can't imagine them being 13 and being hungry and taking a cigarette to school because they don't have anything else like that breaks my heart. So to think that so many children are going through the same thing that you and I went through. This is the reality for millions of children in America. Quick break from today's episode to talk to you guys about Sakara. Are you working from home right now? Or maybe you're even heading back to work and things are getting really, really busy. The bottom line is you can stay healthy, focused, and energized with fresh, delicious meals delivered straight to your door from Sakara. Right now, grocery stores are crowded and picked over. You can stay home, stay healthy, and strengthen your immunity with fresh, delicious meals delivered straight to your door from Sakara. Sakara is a nutrition company that believes that wellness begins with what you eat. Their signature nutrition program brings the transformational power of plant nutrition into your home in the form of fresh, plant-rich, ready-to-eat meals made with organic ingredients and powerful superfoods. Each meal is expertly designed to boost immunity, improve energy, support gut health and digestion, and get you that glowing skin. 
I personally did Sakura for a week and I absolutely loved it. It's something that I actually want to do again. I am paleo, but I eat a ton of plants. And did you know that when eating a week of Sakara's meals, you're consuming over 400 different ingredients? I loved the variety and all I had to meal prep from the week was a little bit of chicken and a little bit of salmon and I was good to go. All of Sakara's meals are 100% plant-based, gluten-free, dairy-free, and non-GMO. In addition to their delicious meals, Sakara also offers offers daily essentials like supplements and herbal teas to complete your wellness routine and support your overall health and vitality. To boost immunity, try their best-selling daily probiotic blend or detox water drops with pure chlorophyll. And right now, Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off their order when they go to sakara.com slash reality or just enter code reality at checkout. That's Sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A, dot com slash reality to get 20% off your order. Sakara.com slash reality. You know, people hate when I talk politics on this podcast, but I'm sorry, I'm going to continue to do so because racism is a political issue. Poverty is a political issue. This isn't issues on morality. You know, this for-profit prison industry, political issue, the lack of maternity care, um, mental illness, depression, all of these things are political issues. Um, because when you actually can imagine if, you know, and I think that we're having the conversation a lot in media about emotional intelligence, like the ability to empathize with other people. And, and hopefully more and more people are, especially when we're talking about racism and white privilege and what's happening in um, marginalized communities right now, we have to be able to go, what would that feel like if I was that kid? And what would I do in order to survive? It makes perfect sense to me that you would sell drugs or sell your body, which I have talked openly about why I wasn't an active prostitution. I definitely sucked a lot of dick for drugs. That's just a part of it. It's a, it's a very fast progression too. You know, I don't know where, or I don't know when we just decided we're not going to talk about anything like this. We're not going to talk about for-profit prisons, political issues, drug addiction, mental health. I don't know when we decided that we couldn't talk about it or we couldn't have difference of opinion, or we couldn't just even have an open dialogue on a podcast or Facebook. People tend to listen and be, they become so defensive without hearing. They don't listen to hear, they listen to speak. And I really think that we need to stop doing that. We need to open our minds and open our hearts and listen to hear so that we can begin to learn to empathize with people and we can understand what better, what things we could do to help these situations. Exactly. So at what age did you begin selling drugs? I started selling weed at about 13. Yeah. And that was like my, I remember my first deal. I, I had sold for a family member. He just asked me to run something across the street. I think it was maybe an eighth. And I think I made like $10 off of that deal. But to me, like 10 bucks, are you kidding? <laughs> like, cool. I can buy nachos at school tomorrow. Cause I have 10 bucks, you know? So that was it. You know, I, I have a hustler mentality. I have a go get it mentality. And if you show me a way to make money, I'm going to capitalize on that. So nachos, 
did it rapidly progress from there or how, from what I understand, you went to prison for dealing methamphetamines. Right. It, um, I think I sold like garbage weed, um, for almost a year. Didn't we all? It was so bad. Like it was brown, like mids. Ew. <laughs> People don't even understand how bad weed was in the nineties. Yeah. So yeah, I, I did that for a while and, and then it upgraded to a little bit of cocaine that I had stolen from somebody at a party. Um, and then I, I would sell anything I could get my hands on. I would sell pills. And then eventually at, you know, 18 or 19 years old, I started to sell heroin and I had already been using pills and, um, you know, anything that I could find. Uh, so at 18, when I started selling heroin, that was when the real money came in. I was making a ton of money and, you know, I, I always had these rules that I, I swear I would live on and, and all these rules to make sure that I am, I am safe, I'm protected, and I, I don't get too bad with my addiction, and I make my money back. And, and the rules were always very simple. Don't get high on your own supply. We've seen every movie on drugs uh, that you could ever imagine. Yeah, that never worked for me. I don't know. <laughs> Literally doesn't. It worked for I, me I would for go a and get a bunch of Coke, turn it into crack, Started selling crack with my boyfriend at the time, and like the crack would be gone like in an instant. Oh my gosh, it's so bad. So I at first I'm like I'm going to be the best female drug dealer that upstate New York had ever seen, <laughs> and I idealized this false narrative. I really just loved the story of drug dealers, but every movie we've ever seen, they either die or go to prison. That part of the movie never stuck. <laughs> it was the fast life. It was the money. It was the partying. That, that's what I saw. I didn't see George Young go to prison forever. That, yeah. that didn't happen. <laughs> I also think you're just living in the constant present moment. Like you're not yeah. ever thinking about what's going to happen. You're just kind of like, when you become dependent on substances, it's like the only thing that you're focused on in the future is when you're going to get high next. That's mm -hmm. it. The rest oh, yeah. of it is like present moment because you're dealing with so much, so many things that are up in the air and you're juggling so many lies. You can really only focus on the moment. And then it's interesting because then when we get sober, all we can think about is the past or the future, which is <laughs> such a mind fuck. It really is. Yeah. And, you know, eventually I would go on the run and I, I had been to jail at 17, you know, but to me, it wasn't a deterrent. It was a little vacation from the chaos that I was creating in the free world, you know? So, oh, I'm in jail now. See y'all in six months or I'm in jail. See y'all in 90 days. And in jails in New York at that time, I could get heroin very easily. So it wasn't like, oh, I'm getting sober. It was, oh, guess I don't have to sell anything right now. Three hots and a cot, what's up? My friends were there. It wasn't even an issue. I didn't even care. So jail was never a deterrent for me. Meetings never, ever mattered to me. You know, I, I went to meetings high and I tried. I would have these little moments of clarity where it's like, whoa, I think I'm getting too bad. I think I'm getting out of control. Maybe I should try to go to a meeting. I even had a moment where I was like, you know what? this sucks. I'm going to go to the methadone clinic. And no one decides to go to the methadone clinic because they're having a good day. No, <laughs> That's like a oh moment. My God. Where, yeah, we're broken. And we're like, fuck, I have to try something else. So people are saying I can get help here. Let me go get help here. So I started the methadone program. 
And day two, maybe day three, I was late. And they told me I couldn't get methadone. I was like, well, fuck this. I have to hustle to get a 45 minute ride just to get here. So I guess I'm just not going to do it. And I quit after three days. Then it was back to doing everything I was doing, selling drugs, using drugs. And it really got tiresome at the end, you know, and I wanted to quit so many times. And there were a couple of times that I did, but I just remember thinking when I was about 22, thinking, how is this all that life has to offer? How did I just do this to myself? And at 22, I was living in an apartment with my boyfriend. I had racked up almost a $30,000 debt to a drug dealer in New York. I was constantly looking over my shoulder. I would make sure that I had a sawed-off shotgun by the door because you don't know if he's going to come and try to collect this debt. I was waking up to panic attacks and waking up in a cold sweat, and I had to shoot up so that I wasn't sick. I was paying for my addiction, my boyfriend's addiction, and a friend's addiction. Everything from the shoes on his feet to the cigarettes he was smoking came from me and my drug sales. Um, And he just always made it worse. He would either steal from me or use up all the heroin. And then I have to, like you said, I'd have to buy Coke, make it crack, sell it to make up money. It was chaos. It was fucking chaos. And I remember thinking like at, at 22, I'm like, how is this all? <laughs> this cannot be what my life is going to be like forever. I wish I would just die. I thought the only way out of that life was to die. That way, maybe I could have some peace. Yeah. Who thinks like that? Uh, I mean, it's the desperation. I remember just being so done, hitting so many bottoms where you're like, oh, okay, this can't get worse. And then it inevitably gets so much worse. Oh my gosh, Rock Bottom has so many sequels. Oh, yes, it does. And people always think it's so weird when I'm like, going to jail saved my life. It was like the best thing that ever happened to me. And because at the same time, I'm like, fuck the for-profit prison industry and legalize all (laughs) drugs and take care of people's mental health and blah, 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 blah. but it was, it was that thing that I needed that like saved my life. Not the first time I went, the first time I went, I think I realized like, okay. Cause I was in solitary for that entire summer. We can talk, we should talk, we'll, we'll get into this. I want you to continue on with your, with your story first and just explain how it is that you ended up getting the last lockup that you experienced. Oh gosh, the last lockup. So Uh, At 22, I ran from New York because that boyfriend that I was just so obsessed with, he robbed a store. And of course, they want to question me. I was actually working at that store and I would only work a few hours a week because my landlord at the time knew I was a drug dealer. And he's like, I'm going to need some pay stubs from you. (laughs) So I went to this smoke shop and I was like, hey man, uh, I'm going to need a job. I don't want a lot of hours. I'm not going to work that hard but I'll show up, maybe. (laughs) So he actually gave me a job. So long story short, my ex robbed the store. So the police wanted to question me, but at this time, like I already had heat on me for selling heroin and there was kind of a spotlight on me and I knew they had just started to try to build a case on me. So my boyfriend's in jail. I decided that I was going to run, which may or may not have been a horrible mistake, but it all worked out. (laughs) I ran to Arkansas because I had known someone there. And and actually, he was an old runner of mine. He used to sell heroin for me. And I get to Arkansas. 
I'm a New Yorker. You guys have any idea how hard, it, how hot it is in Arkansas? Oh my gosh, and the humidity degrees. is horrible. Ugh, like I couldn't even wear makeup, and it was just so painful. But I show up, and my old runner was like, "Oh, I'm balling. I'm making all this money selling meth. Just come down here." Balling meant he was living in a trailer that should have been condemned. There was no couch. They had these like mat, not mattresses, but these pads like that you would see in a gym, like these little gym mats as a couch, like all stacked Don't up. you love how like meth addicts are always like, this is the good life. It's like, because you're in a psychosis. I mean, like you don't know what good life is. Like you think you're living the good life. Like this is the Ritz Carlton hotel, but you're in a psychosis. I love so that. Bad. I love that about all my meth friends. My meth friends are always like, yeah, okay, come along for a ride. But like, blah, blah, blah. And I get in their car, they're like quarters. I'm like, this is disgusting. This is Girl. so disgusting. <laughs> oh my gosh. It was, it was horrible. And I ended up getting sucked into that. And I got sucked into meth because I was just really lonely. All my friends were in jail in New York. I lost my apartment, lost my boyfriend that I was obsessed with and codependent with, and I had nothing. So I started using meth. And before I knew it, I eventually met cartel members and I was selling cartel meth that they were bringing over the border. And I got down to about 95 pounds. I was shooting meth 10, 12 times a day. And it was so strong that I would shoot meth and I would, what they call over amp. So I would actually pass out after shooting meth and I would do it 10 to 15 or 10 to 12 times a day. Like I was putting so much strain on my heart, on my body, on my mind, but I was making money. So I always rationalized if I'm making money and I'm ahead, then it's not really a problem. You know, my meth, my meth addiction got so sickening that I remember having a little moment of clarity and I'm like, Hey, when's the last time you went pee? And I couldn't remember the last time I went pee. And then I'm like, Oh, cause you're not drinking any water. <laughs> that makes sense. Okay. So this is what you're going to have to do, Jessica. Set timers on your phone to drink water and pee. Okay. Like what? Who has to set timers yeah. on their phone to remember to pee this girl? <laughs> so I was very, very sick. And I had been selling meth living in Arkansas and just acting crazy, selling dope, doing dope for six to seven months. And one night at 4.30 in the morning on October 20th, 2011, I was arrested. And it was a very dramatic scene of undercover cops, DTF agents, and I was thrown on the ground, put in cuffs, put in the back of the car, and taken to jail. So for me, that's not uncommon. But everything about my arrest was just very, very odd. Because <laughs> in New York, you're not going to get arrested by the DTF, the drug task force. No one cares what you're doing. Like, no one's going to sit around and take pictures of you selling a little bit of drugs. So I was basically like, what in the fuck is going on? So they on? had full on pictures of you and they had been following you. Yeah. So they yeah. had um, CIs, undercovers, and Basically, the weird thing is they would have people that they arrested, they'd put little body cameras on them and then come and try to infiltrate my very tiny operation. And I'm like, wow, you're spending a lot of money and a lot of time to arrest some meth addicts, you know, but that's, that's what Fort Smith, Arkansas is like. So I went to jail and I slept for probably a week and a half. And I remember like waking up and I'm like, fuck, I'm still here. 
Like this, this isn't just a dream. And I had walked up to the door and this lady that I knew from the street, she goes, Oh, New York, how you feeling? Are you hungry? And she was going to bring me a tray if I was hungry. And I'm like, no, 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 come here. Why am I here? Like, what are the charges? Everything was just so gray and so blurry. I didn't understand. Like, what did I do? <laughs> like, is it drugs? And she's looking through my belongings in the cell to kind of find my booking sheet. And she looked at it first. And then she looked back at me and she goes, fuck. I'm like, what? Just fucking give it to me. Okay. It says meth. Okay, cool. Meth. Um, and a gun. Oh God. Well, guess I'm going to prison. And I went back to sleep. You know, it, it wasn't a shock to me that I was going back to prison. Didn't care. Let me sleep. <laughs> well, as the, as the days turned into a couple of weeks, I started to get really, really sick. Now, I was kind of, had already slept off the meth. It had been a few weeks. And I'm like, eh, you know, maybe, maybe it's something else. Maybe my body's not responding well to the jail food because that happens every time you go to jail. It's a oh, Jesus. That, yeah. <laughs> Let's stop for a second because... <laughs> I don't think people realize it takes your system a while to get used to that food. Yeah, it's basically, so they're feeding you food that I wouldn't feed to a dog Mm -mm. and they're feeding you the tiniest portions. And for some reason, every time I've gone to jail, I've gotten really constipated from the food. Yeah. So, well, (laughs) I was detoxing off heroin and we know what that's like. Oh, right. I mean, except for those times. <laughs> um, but I, okay. So my first time in jail, I wasn't at all prepared. So but when I had initially gotten arrested, I went to jail to go through booking, but I got bailed out. And then I ended up taking a plea deal and I went to Linwood Correctional Facility and I spent the whole summer there in protective custody which is basically for all of those who don't understand, you're in a cell by yourself, 23 out of 24 hours a day. You get one hour out of your tiny ass cell a day to go down to the communal shower, which is the most fucking vile thing that I've ever, ever seen in my life. And you can make a phone call and there's like a basket of books and that's pretty much it but I remember when I turned myself in to go um to jail because I if you only go to prison if your sentence is long enough so and I almost wish I would have gone I remember wishing I was going to prison like I remember being in booking and you're lined up like imagine those school benches and you're straddling it and there's like you know girl after girl after girl after girl and you're waiting to go through processing and I remember hearing about how much better the food was and like the yards were and being like fuck I almost wish I had like a year so that way I didn't have to be here because it's so fucking shitty but anyway I could never serve time in county jail for that long like please take me to prison yeah it fucking horrible so but I remember I didn't know anything so when I went this was my first time serving a sentence and so I didn't know that you know they don't give you water they don't give you fucking water they give you a milk 
in two juices, which are not juices, in these tiny little containers. And that's all you get every day. And so my first time when I was in protective custody that first time, and protective custody, I was begging them, Jessica, to let me into general population because protective custody is where all of the murderers are. The people who are standing trial for like murder or who cannot be in general pop because they're so violent or because they're severely mentally ill. Right. So, so why were you there? Because my case was so public. Oh, I'm about to Google you. Was, I can't believe you haven't already. Do you remember the bling ring? All of those kids that robbed celebrities? <gasps> Stop. Yeah, that's me. Um, so, <laughs> so I remember going in and I didn't, I wasn't prepared. First of all, commissary. <laughs> okay. Now we're going down a whole nother rabbit hole, which I want to go down. But first I want you to finish <laughs> what you were talking about. Cause I don't want this to be all over the place because your sickness ended up being a positive pregnancy test. Right. Well, I'm like literally obsessed with you now. So <laughs> you have to come on the podcast. I will. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't remember asking to go to the nurse. And I actually believe that it was my friend. Um, she told them something's wrong. Now, I, I was kind of coming down off meth and I did have Roxy's in my system. And, you know, I, I was a very bad addict. I would speedball Roxy 40s in meth. So maybe that's what it is, but this just felt different. So someone else must have put in a kite for me to go to the medical unit because I just didn't do that. I would never tell them there was anything wrong with me. I was still very much criminal, Jessica. Because that's the thing. If you tell them you're on drugs, then they're going to know you're on drugs. And then they're going to know, you know what I mean? It like solidified. I, my second arrest was for possession of heroin, which I conveniently blamed on my 15-year-old sister because um, I'm a cunt like that. And I beat the fuck out of you. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I remember kicking. It was the worst kick I've ever had in my life. And at the time, they arrested me on a Friday. And so they couldn't actually take me to the correctional facility until Monday. And so I had to sit in the fucking police station, which is the worst thing ever. I remember starting to kick. And the girl was screaming, she needs medical attention. And they kept saying, okay, we'll take, we'll, we'll take you to Linwood. If you need medical attention, we'll take you to Linwood right now. I was like, no, I'm fucking fine. <laughs> Cause I didn't want anyone to drug test me to know that I was high on the heroin that they had found on me. Right. You know, it probably would have been better if they tested you for heroin because <laughs> you know, they might've helped you some, but I doubt it. <laughs> this was before they were now I know, especially in California, they are helping people through their detoxes. But back in 2009, 2010, I don't think they were. Yeah, they didn't help you in New York either. And they definitely didn't help you in Arkansas. <laughs> they gave you some nausea medication. And that's it, I think. But I, I really just didn't want to talk to the guards. I didn't want to talk to staff. And I never have. You know, so I was like, I'm not going to tell them anything. Well, I found myself in the medical, the nurse's station. And... I guess I had taken a pregnancy test, no memory of that whatsoever. All I remember is this nurse coming up to me and she said, oh, that's what's the matter. You're pregnant. You can go back to your dorm now. I was like, hold up. I'm I'm sorry. It sounded like you said I was pregnant. You can't just speed past there. Like you didn't just say that, (laughs) you know, like what? And she said, yeah, yeah, I don't know. You're pregnant. And I'm like, 
okay, I'm, I'm Jessica Kent. Maybe you have me mixed up with somebody else. And she was really annoyed that I was like pressing her. I'm like, dude, no, no, no. Can I see that piece of paper? Can I see whatever you have? Like, please, like, no, I'm not. There's, there's no way I'm on birth control. And the way that I would sit is I would always have my arms crossed and I would have my hands in the, in my elbow ditch so that you couldn't see my track marks. And I was so shocked that she was saying I was pregnant. I had forgotten that. And I had dropped my arms to my side mm. and she saw my tracks and the look of disgust on her face just broke me, you know? And I realized like, oh fuck, I forgot to cover my arms. So long story short, I go back to my unit and I go back to sleep and an officer comes to my cell. I don't even know how long after that. And she says, Kent, you got to move. And I'm like, what? I'm not dead. <laughs> like, I thought she meant like, you have move to your move body. your body. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, it's, yeah. it's a, like a living person check. I'm good. <laughs> and she said, You're like, I'm good. I'm just dying of detox right now. Like, let me dead. Move, move on. <laughs> <laughs> so she's like, no, you got to move cells. And I said, why? And she said it so loud because you're pregnant. So now the entire unit has heard that I'm pregnant. This was a unit comprised of people that I sold drugs to, people that owed me money, people that allegedly snitched on me. Also, two women that had slept with now my future baby daddy. And I tried to block all that out while I was sleeping and detoxing, but now they know there's a weakness. And I walked out and I said, I'm not pregnant. And she kind of scoffs at me and she's like, whatever, you're going to cell 24. I moved into cell 24. And for the next five months, I just was in complete denial that I was pregnant. Yeah, I was getting fatter, but I'm sober. So I'm just a happy fat, you know, like I'm eating food and it's not what it is. I'm not pregnant. Girl, I had jowls. Okay. Like I was <laughs> pregnant. <laughs> oh, I was so All pregnant. that commissary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know, as I started to get better and feel stronger, I would hustle. I would thread eyebrows. Yeah. I would do haircuts. I would steal contraband. There was even times where I stole pens out of the guard's pocket, like on their person. You know, I was very good at pickpocketing and, you know, um, I had, I had a little bit of commissary. Mm -hmm. So as, as the, the months went on I was fighting my case and the first offer that was given to me was 20 years. Now I'm a New Yorker. That means 20 years. You might get out in like 17, but you're going. And they kept trying to explain to me like, no, you're not going to serve 20. It's you'll serve a half of your time. I'm like, that's 10 or you'll serve a third of your time. And I'm like, I'm not a fucking mathematician. I don't know how much time you're talking yeah. about right now. <laughs> you know, so I was trying to make sense of it, but I said, no, I'm not taking 20 years. Then they came back and said 10. And I said, oh, we're negotiating? Sweet, no. Yeah. <laughs> like, you just took it from 20 to 10. I'm going to try my luck again. And the whole time, they wouldn't offer me legal material. I couldn't talk to my lawyer. I had my mom Googling Arkansas drug laws from New York, and I could only talk to her when I hustled up enough money for a phone card. So in a 10-minute phone call, I'm like, mom, okay, this is what you got to Google. Google the statute. Google this case. I'm going to write it all down. And my mom, bless her soul, is so slow with technology. So I'm like, okay, wh what'd you get, mom? What'd you find? Hold on, I'm still searching. And I'm like literally sweating, having yeah. contacts on the phone with her. <laughs> like, this is going to drop. The call is going to drop, mom. 
write it on a postcard and mail it to yeah. me because they only would let me have a postcard. So, you know, she was just trying her best. And mm. finally, I was getting advice from my friend who my lawyer called a thug. And he had been through prison many times. He said, Jess, just hold, hold your ground. Do not let them intimidate you. Don't, don't worry about it. They're going to say whatever they're going to say. I know that you can get less than 10. So I was six months pregnant when my lawyer came up to me and said, if you don't sign this plea right now, today, we're going to trial and you will never get out of prison. And I'm like, well, what's the plea? He said, five years with 15 suspended and 40 years exposure, which we don't have enough time to even explain. But I said, five years, I might get to know this baby if I only have to serve five years. And he said, well, you're probably going to serve less than that as I've explained to you for the past six months. <laughs> and I'm like, but it's five years. If I'm signing five, I expect five because I'm a New Yorker. That's what you do. So I was like, okay, cool. I might be able to meet my daughter. I never imagined you know, everything that would happen next. But I signed that plea and I went to prison. When I got there, there were other pregnant women and I always had felt so alone and so embarrassed. The shame, just being a drug addict by itself is heavy shame. You know, we feel shame within ourselves, then we are shamed by others. It's a very dark place to be. So you had pregnancy on top of that. You have every guard looking at you, every person looking at you like you're that girl, like, uh-oh, here comes the pregnant girl. And that sucks. You know, I, I didn't have a baby shower. I didn't get to welcome this new life into the world. My family didn't get to come together and have a gender reveal. I couldn't pick out clothes or shoes. It was a pregnancy that was 100% dedicated to remaining safe. A pregnancy dedicated to hustling... <laughs> to get ice or clean water, prenatal vitamins. It took me three months in the county jail to fight for prenatal vitamins. I mean, I spent my whole pregnancy with Micah fighting and fighting and fighting. So when I went into labor with her, I remember again being in denial. Like, no, I'm just in the most pain I've ever felt in my life. It's not a baby. Everyone look away. Like, I'm definitely not having a baby. I'm nine months pregnant, but it's got to be something else because my due date was two weeks later. So I, I was so ignorant to how humans are born. I thought that she would come on my due date. <laughs> and I kept telling people that. I'm like, no, 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 no. It's not my due date. Like it's not pregnancy time or it's not labor time. It's not my due date, guys. It's fine. I didn't have any books. I didn't have, I couldn't read what to expect when you're expecting I couldn't Google certain pains that you have during pregnancy or, or feeling certain things. Like everything about pregnancy was a complete mystery to me. You know, I'm a female, but like I never even expected to have a baby. So of course I don't know like why I'm feeling really emotional this day and, and really happy the next and why I'm, why my feet are freaking swollen. So I have no idea. Well, you know, to make a long story short, I went into labor at four o'clock in the morning. The correctional officer told me that I had to walk myself to the infirmary. And as I did that, every step was more painful than the one before. But I thought once I get to this infirmary, they're going to help me. The pain is going to go away. They're going to give me something, you know, to alleviate the pain. And we're going to have a baby today. I need to stay calm. Trust your body, Jessica. Your body knows what to do. And I was cheering myself on while crying and walking to the infirmary. I tried so hard to be positive. Once you get there, everything's going to be okay. 
Well, in prison, you have to buzz through every single door. You have to get security clearance to go through. Mm -hmm. And that walk is long. And I felt like every door, yeah. And every door I hit, I was like, ah, just three more doors. And I would stand there holding my stomach, grinding my teeth. And it was just really bad. I get to the infirmary finally. And this nurse looks at me and she's like, what? (laughs) I'm like, I'm in labor. You know, I could barely tell her, like, I'm in labor. And she said, okay, just sit in that wheelchair. You're going to have to wait till shift change. And then at shift change, we can take you to the hospital. Girl, it was 4.30 in the morning. Shift change is at 7.30. And they have to count. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I was like, okay, that's fine. We're just going to wait till shift change. It's okay. It's all right. I I wasn't even talking to anyone. I was just talking to myself. And I was like, it's going to be fine. Those hours went by so slow. People kept walking past me and I'm holding onto the wheelchair arms for every contraction so hard that I'm like digging into my own skin. And I remember thinking, I just want to call my mom. I just want to call my mom. And my water hadn't broken. So that was my only like saving grace. And I was like, okay, well, if my water hasn't broken, then maybe she's not coming today. Maybe it's just a bad day. Like, I don't know, you know? They didn't check to see how dilated I was. They didn't check my blood pressure. They didn't check anything. Well, finally, I was able to go to the hospital. And that was, again, the most humiliating experience of my life because these nurses kept talking to the correctional officers that were with me and not talking directly to me. They were asking them for my medical history. They asked them if I could have an epidural. They asked them if I could have you know, ice chips. Every time I would request something, they asked the correctional officers and they wouldn't even look at my face, you know, and I felt like I was less than a human being. But this story is not what happens to most women. There are women all over this country today in 2020 that give birth alone in dirty jail cells. They're not even taken to the hospital. So I don't want you guys to feel bad for me because I'm at a hospital with correctional officers and the nurses wouldn't talk to me. That is a blessing. At the same time, here's the thing. Yeah, but we're comparing like dog shit to pig shit. Like (laughs) this is 2020 and we know about mental health. We know, I mean, I talk about the ACEs study all the time about how emotional trauma affects the brain and the body. And for a system that claims that it's about rehabilitation, you can't be treating inmates the way that we treat inmates and expect them to rehabilitate. Jessica, you're a fucking miracle. The fact that you had this baby and were like, fuck this, I'm going to fight to get her back. There are very, very few people who actually end up doing that. Because what happens is the system shames you and is so inhumane and so derogatory and so just horrible to inmates, specifically, you know, right now we're talking about pregnant women, that the vast majority give up. The vast majority succumb to their addictions again when they get out. The vast majority, and do we blame them? Can we really blame them? When you give birth chained to a bed and then give birth and have your baby ripped from you, can we blame the women who go back to using drugs as a means to cope when they have no coping skills and no tools? 
I've seen other women go into labor in prison before me and they came back and I thought that I could go through this because they did, you know, and their babies did go to family members in every case but mine at the time that I was at this unit. And you see, you see how humiliating it is for them and you see how hard it is for them. But I saw that they did it and they came back and they were okay. So if they did it, I could do it. Now, there are a lot of women that have gone through the same thing that I went through, but we have to understand that mentally we are not equal. And I responded in a very different way. So we need to to have a lot of support for women that are pregnant in prison and mental health and drug addicts. And there's so much more that we can do. But my experience with giving birth, my daughter went into foster care. Yeah. And she was physically removed from me at that hospital. And I was thrown into a chair and then thrown into the van handcuffed. I didn't know where my daughter was going. That that caused the most severe postpartum depression and PTSD yes. that I could ever describe. I didn't have a counselor coming to see me in, in the infirmary. I didn't have a nurse saying more than two or three words to me a day. I couldn't even speak. I didn't know what to do. And I'm very, very grateful that one day after two weeks of not speaking, eating, drinking, sleeping, two weeks of just staring at the ceiling in complete disbelief that I had just lost the only thing I had ever loved in my life, my daughter, two weeks of that, I woke up one morning and I was like, what the fuck are you doing, Jessica? You're just going to lay here and stare at the ceiling? Like You have to snap out of this. You have to snap out of this. Do not let them win. Do not let them keep that little girl. You love her, you will fight for her. And I don't know how I pulled myself out of that, but I shouldn't have had to pull my own self out. I should have had some kind of help. Yeah, I I mean, something, a psychologist, medication, a, a person to fucking talk to, something. They just left me alone in the infirmary. You know, they would give me a tray or put a tray on this little side table. And they would come in an hour later and the food would still be there. They wouldn't even say anything to me. They'd just take the tray away. Like I was just literally, like I felt like I was a shell of a person. And it almost felt like this was not happening to me. This was happening to someone else. Like it almost felt like an out-of-body experience. Like no way is this you. No way did you, how did you get here? How did this happen to you of all people? You're stronger than this, right? No, I, I wasn't. So for all of the women that have gone through this and they have had family support and they've been able to regain custody, that's amazing. But there's a huge gap of people like me that didn't have family to help, that didn't have support on the outside, that had nowhere to go after prison. Their, their kids went to DHS custody. You know, we need to help these people. And I, I believe there's only a couple of prisons in the United States that allow the women to keep their babies there. Bedford Hills being one of them in upstate New York. Um, I think Indiana has has a similar program, but the, just the psychological trauma that happens when a mother and a newborn baby can't create that bond. Not only the psychological trauma for the mother, but for the baby as well. Right. You know, and, and I didn't have, I didn't regain custody of my daughter until she was over two years old. Yeah. You know, I only saw her one time when I was still in prison and that was when she was six months old. I went to family court. I got to see her for 15 minutes. So I didn't even know what she looked like because I left a a two-day-old baby. Now I have to go into family court with all these other babies and pick out which baby looks most like me. 
I mean, that is crazy. I remember thinking like, it's okay if you don't know what she looks like. Babies change really quickly. Don't feel bad. Like, don't, don't beat yourself up over this. And I would have to constantly have these talks to myself. Like, don't feel, don't feel bad. This is okay. It's just part of the journey. But when I saw her at six months old, it kind of just reinstilled that strength because she, I'm sorry, is the cutest baby I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and I was like, oh girl, like I, I saw how sweet she was and how innocent she was and, and how she deserved a mother that was there for her and sober. And seeing her was, you know, just the thing that helped me break the prison mentality, you know, and imagine what my mindset would have been like if I got to keep her those six months, yeah. you know? Like I, I wanted to protect her and I wanted to leave court that day with her, but I had a lot of work to do. I was still an addict. I still needed to figure out how to be sober and healthy so that I could be there for her. And now we just celebrated her eighth birthday. And that is my little, my little sidekick. You know, I am obsessed with her and I'm just so grateful that I get to be her mom, but it didn't come with anything easy. It was very, very hard. I worked for a year to get custody of her back. And, you know, she was confused. Why, why am I hanging out with this chick on Saturday? I wasn't mommy. I was the girl that would give her happy meals and we'd play in the park every Saturday. It was almost like I was a babysitter when I got out of prison. You know, I, I wasn't mom. And, and that took what me a long time What were her foster parents like? So I got very lucky in this case as well. Her foster parents and I actually still talk. They are, ironically, the foster father is a police officer. <laughs> so that was just kind of a, a weird interaction where it's like convict cop, you know? I knew always day one that I would have to prove myself the most to him. You know, he was very protective of Micah. I saw that and I respected that because I needed that. I mean, they were there when I couldn't be there. And the foster mother is the the most amazing person I've ever met. She's so kind. And she actually, um, they have three of their own and three adopted babies. So it's a big family and they're just, they're great. So I was very, very lucky. And Micah calls them auntie and uncle. So we're still in communication. And I felt like that was important for Micah that we didn't just erase them or erase our past. So Micah is eight and our youngest is four. And we have open conversations about prison and mental health and foster care and, and that the foster family was there for Micah when I couldn't be there. And I, I didn't know if I should tell her everything, but my gut tells me to do it because I didn't have those open conversations and I have to do better. I don't want to give my children everything I never had. I want to teach them everything I didn't know. You know, I want to teach them the lessons that took me years to learn. We need to help people. We, we all make mistakes and there are consequences for those mistakes. You know, it's okay to be sad because we all feel sad. And sometimes that sadness comes from absolutely nowhere. And that's depression, you know, and I wish I understood that at such a young age, but I didn't. And I'm very humbled and proud to say that I had that realization. Like you need to teach your babies these things. I think this is what I mean when I say like going to jail was the best thing that ever happened to me because, you know, and really all of my best when I look at it and people hear that, they're like, even the abuse, like even the sexual abuse, even all of the things. And while I wouldn't wish sexual abuse on anybody, including myself, I think that if you can get to the other side and I hope people 
hear this and feel inspired by our stories that we really have this opportunity to become, it becomes a gift because we get to be these really empathetic people who care about so many different issues who do, if you take the necessary steps, become incredible parents. I look at, I have a a seven and an almost four-year-old and I look at the way that I parent them, the conversations that we're having, the my ability to really um, give them so much more than I got, the, the tools for how to navigate this world, to be a good human, to do all of these things. And it wouldn't have happened. It was like I needed to break that generational curse of, of trauma, uh, that cycle. And so it did, it ended up being the best thing that's ever, ever happened to me. I think we're allowed to say that prison or jail was a good thing for us, but we can also still fight for change within that system. And I think that's where people get confused. Like, yes, we needed that moment of clarity. We needed the sobriety. We needed the time. But at the same time, there are so many problems with our criminal justice system. We can stand up and say that we need to change that. And I'm, I'm so grateful that I've experienced all the things that I've experienced because there's no way that I would not only understand how broken our system is, but I also wouldn't want to fight for something I didn't understand, you know? Yeah. yeah. And so now we get to use our voices to say that this is wrong. And I'd like to talk about some of those things. It was interesting the other day, or not the other day, a couple of months ago, I got a letter that there's a current case, criminal and civil, going on at the Linwood Correctional Facility for the abuse of women during their intakes with regards to body cavity searches and the strip downs that we have to do upon entering prison. Mm. And it just really made me think of how much fucked up shit happens in there, you know, because we aren't. I don't want to say we're not given water. In the cell that I was in, you have this tiny ass sink. You don't have a cup, but you have this tiny ass sink that you have to push the button. It's kind of like at old parks. You remember when you're a kid and you have to push the button and then like a dribble of water comes out of the sink. And so you'd have to like push, 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 push that button in just to wash your hands. That's all I had. I didn't understand how commissary worked. I didn't understand that I had to. So I went into jail on a Wednesday and commissary came on Tuesday. I had no money on my books. I had to beg people to put money on my books while I was there. When I would make calls, they would have to pick up and accept the charges. But what ended up happening because I had such few fluids and because I was detoxing and during that process you're having violent diarrhea and vomiting, which leads to dehydration as I developed a severe kidney infection. And it took them five days to get me to the infirmary. Five days with a kidney infection. You can die from a kidney infection. It was at the point, and my cell was on the upper level of the cell block. I could not walk down the stairs. And they were like, get up, Nyers, get downstairs. This is your only chance to get to the infirmary. I had to walk there. They couldn't even be bothered to get me a wheelchair. I mean, such excruciating pain. And I was so weak and so ill. And then I saw a doctor 
So I got into the infirmary finally. There was a woman who was five months pregnant. That's 22 weeks, guys. And she had been bleeding for three weeks. They couldn't get her in. And she ended up having a miscarriage that day. Oh my God. I mean, the treatment is so horrible. The doctor who I saw through a fucking computer ended up diagnosing me with a double kidney infection and a severe dehydration. And they laid me on a mat in a cell that was covered with somebody else's dried up barf that smelt like barf with an IV running. And they left me in that cell for probably seven or eight hours. I don't know, because there's no clocks. Like you, I don't think people understand, like there needs to be humanity in this. Like I understand losing your rights and doing your time, but like when you're at the mercy, like when you can't get back to your cell, for like hours on end, when you get a meal skipped, that's it. You don't get another meal when you miss dinner. You don't, you know what I mean? I don't think people really understand what that is really like. I think it would be amazing if everyone just decided to volunteer for, you know, 48, 72 hours mm-hmm. in jail. You can quit anytime, but just sign up for 72 hours And it would give you such an amazing perspective. I think more people would be fighting for prison reform if they just saw with their own two eyes, like how horribly you're treated. I was always terrified of a miscarriage. I was always scared that I was going to get hurt. I was tripped when I was about four or five months pregnant and I didn't know if there was something wrong with my baby. You know, it was, it was a very dark time. You're not getting ultrasounds in prison. No, no. I, I did get one because they did take me to a free world clinic. Um, but I have seen someone, you know, I've seen people die in jail and prison before. And these are situations where if noticed by correctional officers, they would not have died. It's clearly negligent homicide, but people, you know, correctional officers get away with that all the time. And I'm not saying that all correctional officers are bad. I'm not saying all police officers are bad. I'm saying some jobs can't have bad apples, some jobs, yeah. you need to care about what you're doing. You need to care about these people because they're human beings. Yeah. No one should die alone in a jail cell. There were so many people because I was in protective custody. That's where they place a lot of people who are severely mentally ill and they would harm themselves, like slam yes. their heads against the concrete. And it's like, this is not, this person's still a human. This person is still potentially savable. Like, she should not, she should be in a padded cell. Like she needs medication, you know, she needs stabilization. I mean, I think it's really time to start talking about, you know, we as taxpayers pay into this multi-billion dollar system um, that just generally affects people of color and people who are low-income families. And they're not spending any money rehabilitating them. So I had Zach uh, Scow on the podcast a number of months ago. And yeah, he talked about like, so you have this prison industrial complex that is costing billions and billions of dollars to taxpayers every single year. And a very small portion of that money is allotted towards rehabilitation, a very, very small amount. And so it's no coincidence. I remember 
getting, I remember when they called me out of my cell and they were like, Nyers, come down here and bring your belongings. I thought that they were moving me to a different cell, which happens because someone comes in or whatever, you have to get moved. And so I packed up all of my stuff and they were like, you can't bring that. And I was like, what do you mean? I can't bring this. Like, I just got all of this commissary. People don't understand. Like, this is how sad it is. And and I'm not telling people to feel bad for us at all. And I, and I also recognize my privilege that like getting a six month sentence with three years suspended for residential burglary is like, you know, a cakewalk compared to what a lot of people of color experience. Not to mention the fact that the privilege of just my family being able to afford my $100,000 bail. But I remember like commissary is like gold, like having shower shoes and like <laughs> shower shoes, people like you need shower shoes because the showers are so disgusting. I remember my first week I didn't have shower shoes and I remember showering and walking into that thing and going, I'm definitely getting like a fungus right now. Like, this is it. Like, I'm going to get a fungal infection from this dirty ass shower. So gross. But just having that commissary is gold. And I remember them being like, you have to leave it here. And then I realized I was being released. And I was like, holy fuck. Like, I'm getting out of here. And in the holding area, the cop was like, I'll see you again in a few months. And I was like, fuck you. No, you won't. She goes, 75 plus percent of people are back here within a couple months. I was like, I'm not going to be back to this place. Like this was fucking horrible. And I got out sure enough, right back to shooting up and then went back in. But you know, it's like, we have a system where once, once you have that scarlet letter, once you have that big red F that they basically stamp on you, that affects your ability to vote for housing, to get a good job, you're fucked. And you will end up back there because they don't make it so that way you can go and rehabilitate yourself. You know, they don't make that process very easy at all. There's so much that you said that I could just add on to, um, but I'll just keep it short. If you guys don't understand bail, you need to just start looking up bail reform because bail essentially just keeps poor people in jail. And most people in jail are innocent until proven guilty, but because they're unable to pay these astronomical fees for bail, they stay in jail. And what happens when you stay in jail is you lose your job, you lose your apartment, your family, you know, if you are the sole income of that family, what is your family doing without you and that income? So that needs to change. But imagine what would happen if we started treating people in jail like human beings. Imagine if we were kind to them. If when you walked in jail, you didn't think that you were going to get a foot fungus. If we gave them water, I promise you, I did not want water down Kool-Aid. I just wanted ice water. I just wanted water. I just want water. Like, can I get water? I, I remember going, so I'm so grateful. I don't remember her name, but like the mama, you always have the mama in your cell block, right? And I remember I was so ill and people, because I had a high profile case, they would just come and I would be in my cell and they would just stare through the glass, stare at me while I was yeah. in there doing nothing, you know, vomiting, shitting my pants because I was detoxing so bad, shaking violently, whatever it was, I was sleeping, trying to sleep, kicking the wall because my legs hurt so bad from the withdrawals. Um, if you haven't been through fucking heroin withdrawal, the most horrendous thing ever. It's like a flu times a fucking thousand. 
But anyway, I remember her coming to me and just being like, she just said, it's going to be okay, baby. And like, she's like, do you want to borrow my shower shoes? And I like didn't get it at the time because I was so not ready to shower because the water pressure is so hard. And when you're detoxing off heroin, it's the most painful thing in the world to have one of those like, soap is a fucking privilege. That's a problem. That's a fucking problem. But I remember her just coming to check on me and I learned more about her story. And I remember her handing me a Bible and I remember opening the Bible and reading the Bible and she would come by to talk to me every once in a while um, on her hour out and, you know, just stop by. And then she'd be like, okay, I got to go. I got to call my family. But she was in there because her boyfriend was a, the, the father of her kid was a drug dealer and he ended up killing someone and they were trying to charge her with murder too. And she couldn't, because she was in the car, but she couldn't get out. And so she had been in there fighting her case for three and a half years. Three and a half years, people. That's not okay. It's not okay. She's not responsible for what he did. And there are countless women in there with that same exact story. Countless women who, you know, that woman was a beautiful Latina woman, and I'm so grateful for her to this day, but countless women who are in there because their partners are living a life of crime, because they're poor, because they can't get a good job, because they live in a poor area that has shitty schools, and they couldn't go to college. You know, I think we hear these stories of like, I came from nothing and now I'm a millionaire. You know what a small fucking percentage of people that is? Literally. And we hear these stories as if that means that all black people are equal. That's not the case. It's just not. And so, you know, I hope people will walk away from this and really rethink, you know, about their positions and fight alongside us for prison reform and for the criminal justice system to be reformed. And now I'm totally fighting for police reform. I mean, I always knew it was a corrupt system. If you can become a cop in four to eight months, but you have to go to school for seven years to become a lawyer, that's a fucking problem. (laughs) You know, um, I could just, you know, sit here and talk to you for literally ever. but. people are always saying, I'm, I'm a prison YouTuber. I hear the worst things that people have to say. Mm-hmm. And they, they say it all the time. Almost every day I get this comment because I, I tried to say in a lot of my videos that, you know, 70% of people will go back to prison or that 62% of people will leave prison with PTSD. They didn't go to prison with PTSD in those cases. They left prison with PTSD. So not always, but 62%, you guys. And I think I think what a lot of people that don't understand the system will say is, and I've seen these comments every day, if you don't like prison, don't go back. Why do you keep going back? You must love prison. The, the system reason, is made for you to go back. Yeah. So the reason why we're constantly reoffending is because when I got out of prison this last time, I had one goal on my mind. Get your daughter out of DHS. That was the only thing I wanted to do. It was so hard for me to find a place to rent. It was so hard for me to find jobs that paid well because DHS didn't want me to have a minimum wage job. 
I was able to get two minimum wage jobs and they said, no, 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 that's not okay because it's not consistent income enough, I guess. And I was like, um, okay, I'm a felon. I'll keep trying. And I did. I, I kept trying and I kept fighting. I eventually... I was so desperate to get an apartment and I kept filling out these applications that cost $25 a piece. I didn't have all this money to shell out, but I kept putting in application after application after application to a housing apartment. And I was just desperate to get an apartment. Well, after I spent about $250 that I did not have on apartment applications, I went to this... Um, this little realtor thing that they were having. I saw this for rent sign outside of this duplex that looked super crummy. And I'm like, oh, maybe they'll rent to me because this doesn't look very nice. I walked in and he said that he doesn't rent to felons. And I'm like, listen, if you don't rent to me, I'm not going to get my daughter. I don't have time for this. I don't have time for you to cherry pick who's going to rent this. I need this apartment. I have the money for this apartment. You have to rent to me. And I just broke down. I didn't have anything left to give. I was just, I was about to lose the rights to my daughter. I was about to lose this case. And if I lost my daughter, you would not be talking to me right now. I would have just lost my mind. I would probably not be alive. And that's just because of my own, you know, mental health and my drug addiction. I would have given up on everything, on life, on everything. So I kind of just laid this out to this complete stranger, you know, because I am at a breaking point. I can't hear no one more time. He yeah. rented me the duplex and I was shaking when I signed the lease because are you, are you for real? I can stay here. Like this is going to be mine. And it was the grossest duplex you've ever seen in your life. And I didn't care. I did not care. It was amazing. It was mine. And the first day when I was moving my stuff in, I realized there was no refrigerator. <laughs> that was like, oh my God, I can't even afford a refrigerator. What am I going to do? But you have to, because in order to get your daughter back, you have to have a room for her. You have to have a refrigerator. You have to have enough food in the fridge. You have to not be on food stamps. You have to be doing yes. all of these things. People don't understand that the system is literally, and this is why I get political. It's because when people are talking about poverty, but still voting for Republicans based off of single issues like abortion, you're voting against your best interests. Because the Republican Party tends to defund schools, tends to keep poor areas poor. And they speak, it's called the Southern strategy, you can look it up. They speak to your morals, but they don't actually give a shit about you. They care about getting richer themselves. And so we need to change this entire system because it's not just the Republican Party, it's fucking lazy Democrats too that have done the same thing and profited off of the backs of tax paying citizens. But when you're working a waitress job in Alabama where you don't have to get paid or can make $2 an hour because you're a tipped worker, you know what I mean? How are you going to feed your kids? This, this the way that we operate. I mean, we can do a whole episode on this separate and I don't want to make this one go on too much longer. But um, the way that we're operating the system is put in place to keep poor people poor, to keep poor people uneducated, to keep minority communities uneducated, poor, and in the system because they profit. They make anywhere from thirty to seventy thousand dollars a year per inmate that they keep in the system. That's how much funding they get. Even more if they have mental health issues. So instead of dealing with the drug addicts and the mentally ill, we lock them up. This system is so fucking broken. 
I had a couple of questions that people in my community wrote and wanted to get answers on. And so I'd love to do this just as kind of a wrap up. And I almost want to do a part two with you of just prison stories because I feel like (laughs) we could do that for hours. One was, do you think your experience would have been different or worse if you were black? Absolutely. I saw the way that women of color were treated in jail and it's horrendous. Do you have any input? So there, you know, I can only speak to the things that I've seen in my life. And I have seen overwhelmingly that I would have to go up to the correctional officers and get a commissary sheet for a friend that was being denied a commissary sheet from an officer. Yep. That was a friend that was black and I am a white. I am the complexion of uncooked chicken. So yeah, it was just, that was gross to me. Or there would be times where, where my, my cell was not getting shaken down very often, but one of my friends that was a woman of color every week, you know, I, we've been raided plenty of times, but I would see my friend constantly getting searched, but what is the reason? And she, you know, kept her head down. She didn't bother anybody. She just wanted to do her time, you know, and And that was just so gross. There was plenty of times where I hid contraband for her because I would really only get searched if there was a raid and everyone got searched, you know, and that's gross, dude. Are you you kidding me with this? Or we would be talking in the hallway and if one person is a little bit louder and the guard hears it go above a a certain decibel, they freak out in the hallway. Mm -hmm. And there were times where I would see my friends ripped out of the line and put in the hole for talking in the hallway. I never got put in the hole and I would make jokes all the time in the hallway. You know, like I'm, I'm kind of a class clown and I'd be just saying things or whatever. And I stopped doing that after I saw a very good friend of mine, which I've never seen since, by the way, a very good friend of mine that I had spent months with. She was ripped out of line and I tried to tell the guard it was me. I was doing that. She wasn't doing that. She was standing behind me. She just laughed at me because I'm a freaking idiot. Like it was me. That guard looked me dead in my face and said, shut the hell up, Kent. If you give me any more lip, you're going to go with her. You were at the mercy of these correctional officers. There's literally, I tried, I tried to stand up for her, but what are you going to do? We talked about this. What's it like to get a job out of prison? I could not get a job out of jail. Um, Like even after I had gone to treatment for a year, went to school to get my KDAC, I had to apply so many fucking times just to get a job a minimum wage paying job. I couldn't even be on the lease of the apartment that I lived in. My mom had to lease it for me, which is probably illegal. And I was living there because I could not be on the lease. They would have denied me. One person said, and I, and we'll wrap with this. What was your biggest pregnancy craving? And what did you do in prison to like satisfy that? I love to talk about the like food concoctions that I made in jail. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, my biggest craving in prison was salt and ice, which is the weirdest thing, but I wanted to just chew on ice, which I still enjoy doing. No, I'm not anemic. I just like to crunch (laughs) on ice and I love, you know, I love ice things like ice cream and popsicles and ice because I didn't have that in prison, but I also really craved salt. 
And if you go to my YouTube channel, Jessica Kent, there are tons of prison recipes and I still love that <laughs> shit. Like, like I love prison burritos and I love salty mm-hmm. ass food. <laughs> so my favorite thing was I figured out commissary and I would get Fritos and then it would be chili night. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. And the chili is so gross, but for some reason the Fritos like amplify it as long as you have the right Fritos to chili like combination. So I would get the cheese spray, whatever that's called. So gross. Definitely not cheese. Um, Do you sell like packets of chili on commissary? No. Oh girl. We well, could I was get in jail. You were in prison. Is it different? Well, I was in no. jail first and yeah, we okay. could buy chili. Fuck no. So we could get cup of soup, which I ate a lot of. So you could get cup of soup you could get candy bars, you could get water bottles, you could get one pad of paper, one pencil, one shower shoes, one, you know, shampoo, conditioner, deodorant, an extra pair of socks, which I would use when I would, cause it was so fucking cold. And I would use it as arm warmers when I would go on the bus to court. Because oh my it's gosh, so I totally... I suppressed that. I totally forgot that we used to do that. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. Um, so yeah, but I would get like the like squeeze out spray cheese stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I would get the chili for dinner, which is disgusting. Like the sides are always like those nasty ass green beans that like are not <laughs> green beans. And then, so then I would put, I would open up my bag of Fritos and I'd put the chili in and then the cheese and I'd like mix it all together and eat it with my spork. And Dude, I eat that all day. Favorite meals. <laughs> that I would like, eat that all day. I don't even care. <laughs> Judge me you if you will. You have to get creative because the food in there is so fucking foul that you survive off of commissary. Like, I, if people don't have commissary, I don't know how they're doing it. I don't know how they're doing it. We were hustling and cut, like, so I would thread eyebrows, right? But my hands would be cut open from threading all these eyebrows and my hands were always dry because there's like no lotion and my hands would be cut open just so that I could get hygiene and food items. Yeah. You got to do what you got to do to survive. Well, with that, thank you so much for coming on. We're well over an hour, which I like to keep my podcast at 45 minutes, but here we are. Thank you so much for coming on. Where can everybody find you and follow along and learn more about your story? Well, thank you so much for having me. I feel like I could talk to you all day about this stuff. Um, My YouTube channel is Jessica Kent. My podcast on Spotify is Jessica Kent. And then Instagram is JessKen12 or 89 or something like that. Alexis, we'll leave it in the... um, I'll put it in the show notes. (laughs) Don't worry. It's something Um, like that. Thank you. This week's affirmation is, my life is just beginning, and so it is. If you enjoyed this week's episode, do me a favor, head over to the podcast app and make sure to subscribe to us, rate us, and leave a review. We have new episodes every Monday, and you can follow along with us on Instagram at recoveringfromreality, or visit our website at recoveringfromreality.com. 